I preached in uh, Vancouver, Washington for, for a decade, for 10 years, back in the uh, 80s, the whole decade. And then, then I left, and I went away, and I moved to Michigan and became a professor at a Christian college, and lo and behold, I was invited back to the Pacific Northwest, and I, they asked me to preach a sermon. And I came back for this special occasion, and I preached my sermon. This has been years and years since I'd been at Vancouver. And a, a youngish woman afterward came up, and she said, um, Oh, she said, I just so appreciated your sermon this morning. And of course, I was flattered, and I said, Really? Thank you. And she said, Do you know who I am? And I said, I don't think I do. What is your name? She told me the name and didn't register. And then she said, You'll remember the name that I had when I was a little girl when you were here. And she gave me that name, and I said, oh, yes. I said, I do remember you. I remember you and your mother and your grandmother and your brother Carl all sitting there on about the 17th pew back. And, she, and I said, what did you like about the sermon this morning? And she says, oh, it reminded me of when I was a little girl. She said, your voice was so soothing. It was just so comforting to hear you. I said, oh, tell me more. And she said... <laughs> She said, you would go up into the pulpit when I was a little girl, and you'd put down your notes, and you would take off your watch, and you'd put it down, you'd sort things out. She said, and then you would start your sermon. Yes, yes. She said, and when you did, I would lay my head down on Grandma's lap, and I would, I would fall fast asleep. And she said, your voice is so comforting. <laughs> So as a preacher, you're, you're wondering what kind of impact might, might have been had by this presence. And I was a sleep aid to a little girl in Vancouver, Washington, for a whole decade. And she seemed healthy and robust, and so it all worked, it all worked out. I've been here at Fourth Avenue now for, I guess, one measurement is two quarters or six months. In the first quarter, we were working through our inquiry stage. And so all those assessments that were being done, the congregational assessment, and then the community assessment, and the kingdom, what we called the kingdom assessments, what other churches are doing, nonprofits in the area, and so on. And our history, very few congregations and churches of Christ have as rich a history as does the Fourth Avenue Church. I was reminded when I parked by the, the sign outside this morning that reminds everybody passing by that this congregation began almost 200 years ago under the preaching of Alexander Campbell. It's just amazing. Now that we've done, gone through the inquiry stage, and that's not just to help the recommenders and the candidates to learn about who we are and where we are, but this is a real, it's invaluable self-understanding and your context of ministry that will be tapped into, needs to be tapped into for the next several years. And then we moved into phase two, the inquiry stage, identifying recommenders and candidates, candidates potential lead ministers for this congregation. And that's, that, that, um, that level, that phase, is now coming to a close. And the, and the search committee is ready to move into then the interview stage that will obviously lead to the invitation stage. And that will then bring this to a completion. The last stage doesn't start with an I, it starts with a C. It's the celebration because the new lead minister is now in place and you are off and running. My assessment, my own assessment of this congregation, 
is at least in large part an appreciation, appreciation for the congregation as a whole, for the staff, these hard-working ministers that you have amongst you who really have during COVID and these very, this very difficult season have been doing many of them double and triple duty. And of course, the search committee who have been working incredibly hard, a lot of volunteer hours are being spent working, working to follow the Lord's leading in identifying the next lead minister. And then of course, your shepherds, these individuals who quote unquote have charge of your souls are concerned about you wanting to lead. And my assessment has been that these all of the shepherds the staff, the search committee are hardworking individuals. They are noble-minded individuals. They are dedicated, and they really do have this congregation's interests at heart. And it has been my pleasure to work with you. As we move now into the next level, the next stage, I will not be with you, not, not coaching the committee from this point on, not in the pulpit. I was reminded of a time not as far back as Maranatha, but when I was younger and traveling cross country and we were moving through, traveling through New Mexico and back in those days, churches, every one of them met on Sunday morning, Sunday night and Wednesday night. And it was Sunday night as we were passing through Fort Stockton, New Mexico. And it was church time. So we pulled over and we went to church at Fort Stockton, Church of Christ there. Preacher got up to preach his sermon and he announced that he was doing the first, that Sunday, that Sunday night he was beginning the first of 22 sermons out of a particular psalm because there's, 80, there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet and each one is an acrostic in that particular psalm and he's going to do 22 straight sermons out of the same text and that was his first Sunday. Whew. I thought, you know, note to self, never do such a thing. And... Uh, and so, lo and behold, a year passes almost to the day, and where do we find ourselves traveling cross-country, and where are we going through? But Forks, I'm not making this up, Fort Stockton, New Mexico. And what do we do? But it's church time, so we pull over to the very same church. Well, I'm not making this up. It sounds like I'm making this up. I'm not. And we walk in, and there's a new preacher. <laughs> sure enough... <laughs> And I underscored my note to self. Nevertheless, undaunted, uh, I announced that I was planning a series of sermons from the Book of Acts here at the Fourth Avenue Church of Christ. And lo and behold, we're now in about our third or fourth. <laughs> if you're on the edge of your seat waiting for the completion of this um, series, you'll have to visit me in Fort Stockton, New Mexico, <laughs> which will be my next assignment. I'm making that, I made that part up. That's, that part's not true. Although I'd be open to it, I think. All right, our sermon this evening, this morning I mean, is from Acts chapter 9, uh, verses 1 to 20. I'm going to read the whole thing. I wasn't intending to, but I think I will. Uh, 20 verses will uh, not make it in, in many public readings, but this one is a story. And it's a riveting story. And so I'm going to read it in its entirety. It's spellbinding, really. Uh, so listen. It's the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Acts 9, 1 to 20. Now Saul, 
still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest. And he asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he was happening, as he was traveling, it happened that as he was approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and he heard a voice. And the voice said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who art thou, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. Now get up, enter the city and it'll be told what you must do. Now the men who were traveling with him stood speechless. They heard the voice, but they saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus, and he was three days without sight. He neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord came to Ananias in a vision, and he said, Ananias? And Ananias said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up, go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He's praying. He's seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, he said, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much, how much harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has authority now from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, he's a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the sons of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So, Ananias departed, and he entered the house, and after laying hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me to you so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he got up, and he was baptized, and he took food, and he was strengthened. For several days, Saul was with the disciples who were at Damascus, and he immediately began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And so, our sermon this morning is entitled, What do you think of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus? What do you think of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus? That's not a sermon title that we would put on our reader board and expect throngs to come in from the street, anxious to hear about the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. They would wonder, who is Saul of Tarsus and what's conversion? So it's not a question for the person walking out there on the street. It's a question for you and me, for us here gathered in this room. What do we think of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus? So that we're all on the same page in answering this question, Saul of Tarsus is the character that we just read about 
a convert to Christ on the road to Damascus who will change his name and he will become the Apostle Paul and he will write about half the New Testament. He wrote Galatians and Philippians and Ephesians and Colossians and Romans and 1st and 2nd Corinthians and so on. That Apostle Paul. So what is your opinion of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus? I'd like to begin with Linda, church member. And she says, I'm all in favor of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Why, Paul is one of my favorite writers. Uh, For example, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's my go-to passage. That's the passage that calms me down, that comforts me. I'm all in favor of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Very good. How about you, Dr. Theology? Well, I am in favor of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. His theology is so succinct and so, how shall I say it, inspiring. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. My opinion of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, I'm all in favor of it. Thank you, Dr. Theology. How about you, senior church member? Oh, I've been around for a long time. I am all in favor of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. I love his attitude, you know, loving but firm, like what he says in Galatians. Even though we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel other than that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Loving but firm. I'm all in favor of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Richard, church member, what do you think? Oh, I'm all in favor of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. He's a really smart guy. I've been reading Romans 9 to 11 for the last six years. I can't make heads or tails out of it. Paul, who wrote that thing, may be the smartest Christian ever. I'm I'm glad he became a Christian. I think we need more intelligent Christians like Saul of Tarsus. I'm all in favor of him. And so what's your opinion Longtime Church of Christ member? Well, I'm in favor of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, like I'm in favor of all the conversion stories here in the book of Acts. I mean, it shows us what we must do to be saved. You know, faith, repentance, confession, baptism, it's all right here. That's why I'm in favor of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Well, thank you, everybody, for your responses. I think we have a consensus, maybe a unanimous opinion here from the 21st century church. He's our favorite writer. He writes inspiring theology. He's firm but loving. He's smart. And he's an example of conversion. We are in favor of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. That's a pretty simple sermon. But maybe we should go a little bit deeper before we draw this to a close. What do you suppose Luke, the one who wrote this story, thinks of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus? Luke, what's your opinion of the the conversion of Saul of Tarsus? Well, Luke's already been talking about Saul of Tarsus before we begin our reading. In fact, in Luke's two-volume account, that is the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, nearly every other time, that Luke uses the word persecute, he uses it in reference to Saul. How about that? 
In other words, Luke paints a portrait of the enemy of Christ, of the enemy of the Church of Christ. The face of the enemy is Saul of Tarsus. Wow. Maybe we've known some converts like Saul of Tarsus, whose previous life looked like the enemy of the church. I had a colleague at a college in Michigan who claimed that he was a a real rogue. Some of you might know him. I'll call him by name. He tells this story publicly. His name's John Todd, who said he was a real rogue before he became a Christian. He said his only goals in life were to drive fast German cars and to chase women. He was a rogue, but he wasn't an enemy of the church. He was no Saul of Tarsus. He wasn't persecuting Christians. I knew another man. I will just identify him by his first name. I don't think any of you would have occasion to know him. His name is Tim, who before he was converted to Christ was, in his words, a no-account hippie. At the 1968 Democratic National Convention in Chicago, now famous for its riots outside the convention hall, my friend, then driving a 1968 Volkswagen Bug, now a Christian, was then throwing Molotov cocktails out of the window of his Volkswagen bus. He later converted and he became a minister in Colorado. It was a radical conversion, absolutely, but he was no Saul of Tarsus. Neither of these men were persecutors of the church, persecutors of Christians, as Luke pictures Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus was public enemy number one. The first time we meet Saul in Luke's account is at the scene of the execution, the murder, the lynching of Stephen, a Christian evangelist. Luke says the execution squad laid their robes at the feet of Saul. Luke says they laid their robes at the feet of Saul. Just like Luke said, the church placed the funds early on that they had raised at the feet of the apostles. The apostles were in charge of the money. Saul was in charge of the execution. He wasn't the hat check man. He was the ringleader. He was the mastermind. He was the mob boss, and he put a hit on Stephen as he was putting a hit on the people in Damascus, and the, his, his posse laid their robes at his feet. It was like kissing the hand of Don Carleone. And the next time that we see Saul of Tarsus, he's leading a campaign to terrorize the followers of Jesus. Luke says it this way, Saul is breathing threats and murders against the followers of Jesus. Murders and threats against Christians. Now how do you feel about the conversion of Saul of Tarsus? This isn't the conversion of your friendly neighbor, the woman who lives across the street, or the man who collects mail when you're out of town for a few days, the woman who watches your children on Friday evenings. This isn't the nice neighbor who bakes brownies and brings them to your kitchen for no real purpose other than kindness. Saul isn't among the persons of whom you've said, you know, he'd make a great Christian. Why, he's patient and kind and loving and joyful and good and gentle. Why, he already has all the, all the fruit of the Spirit. Now, Saul isn't that friendly neighbor 
You'd love to see a church. In fact, if Saul showed up at church, you might not come that Sunday. How do you feel about the conversion of Saul of Tarsus? Luke says Saul is a persecutor of the church, but he gives us verbs to describe even more what he means. Luke says Saul ravages the church like an animal on the prowl. He violates Christians. He enters uninvited, unannounced into their homes and into their sanctuaries, and he drags them off. Women and men drags them off for torture, for imprisonment, for murder. Acts 8, verses 1 and 2. Now how do you feel about the conversion of Saul of Tarsus? Imagine the testimony of the women and the children who who were victimized by Saul's reign of terror. How do you feel about the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, Mary Margaret? It disturbs me, to be honest. I lost my beloved sister to that zealot. He imprisoned her. He had her killed. As for me, I uh, this young family, Paul and Sarah, and three, their three little ones. Paul came to me once. He said, during the terror of Saul of Tarsus, we can't, we can't stay. I've got to think of my family. You know, just, Their lives are at stake. Or Saul terrorized our congregation for months. When I hear his name, it conjures up those old images. What he did to the people I loved, when I hear that name, Saul of Tarsus, it makes me physically sick. Oh, this is all conjecture, you say. Maybe we should ask the the one Christian who was involved in this story, in Luke's account. Let's ask Ananias what he thinks about the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Ananias thinks like us. Ananias says, what? You want this guy? (laughs) Lord, he says, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And he's here. He's here. And he has authority from the chief priest to bind everyone who calls on your name. Ananias is giving voice to our objections. Ananias says, what? Wait, no, not Saul of Tarsus. Convert him. We need to punish him. You want to convert somebody? Why, here comes my neighbor now. She's got a platter of brownies for the children. Let's convert her. How do you feel about the conversion of Saul of Tarsus? Of course Ananias protests, and so do we. How do you feel about the conversion of Saul of Tarsus? Maybe we should ask the man himself. Ask the man who was once a terrorist against the church, who would become a leader in the church. He never forgot his past. He never lost sight of the reality that he tortured people for their faith. He tortured the body of Christ. Here's what he said to the Philippians. He says... I was a persecutor of the church. To the Corinthians, he wrote, you've heard 
how I used to persecute the church of God without measure. There were no limits to my persecution. I persecuted without measure. I tried to destroy it. And to his trusted friend Timothy, he confesses, of all the sinners in all the world, he said, I am foremost. That's what he thought about his conversion. We, the Fourth Avenue Church of Christ, are in a transition to hire a new minister. I haven't seen into the promised land, and I won't get there with you, but I know that in this transition you are faced with the possibility of keeping this congregation a safe haven for the saved, a refuge for us and our friends and our children and our grandchildren, what remains of them, protecting us all against the ravages of the world. Or, on the other hand, we can move against the current, go against the flow, and step out into this community as the hands and the feet of Jesus. And I wonder which direction this church will go. I wonder what God has in mind for the Fourth Avenue Church of Christ. In the process, I can imagine a few Saul's of Tarsus. The old Madeline Murray O'Hare is gone. I said her name. You may or may not recall Madeline Murray O'Hare. Your mind's probably going like this, kunk, 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 trying to put that, I know that name, I know that name. She was the aggressive activist atheist who turned up missing several years ago. Best known, Madeline Murray O'Hare, for the 1963 lawsuit which led to the landmark Supreme Court ruling ending official Bible reading in American public schools. She was such an enemy of the church that in 1964, Life magazine referred to her as the most hated woman in America. But she's gone, a distant memory. An historical footnote, as I recall, was it her son who converted to Christianity? I don't remember. But no one anymore feels terrorized by her. And in fact, if I hadn't said her name this morning, she probably would have been permanently erased from your memory. Now the souls of Tarsus that I imagine are current and are being cultivated in our minds as the enemies of the church. I'm now not thinking of the usual suspects, the enemies of the church from a generation ago, casinos, gay rights, abortion. Instead, I'm wondering about the persons who appear daily on your TV screens, on your social media devices, and your Facebook feeds who are being promoted as the enemies of the church, enemies of decency, enemies of America, the enemies that will bring down good people, destroy lives. You may have a long list in your mind of real and imagined enemies. We think often about the enemy, people with violent imaginations, wicked motivations, irresponsible parenting, this community is probably pocked, we think, with souls of Tarsus. So I ask, what do you think of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus? 
Before we go any further in this sermon, before we bring this to a close, I should ask the question that's probably most obvious, and that is this. What does God think of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus? And believe it or not, God is quoted on the matter. I read it there in Acts 9. God says, Saul of Tarsus is a chosen instrument of mine. God says, Saul of Tarsus will carry my name before the Gentiles and before kings and the sons of Israel. Acts 9, verses 15 and 16. And that's exactly what happens. Saul changes his name to Paul, and he carries the gospel to Gentiles, and he speaks with King Agrippa. What does God think of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus? Evidently, God approves of the conversion of this real enemy of the church, which raises the question then, what do you think God thinks of our enemies, both real and imagined? We are faced with the possibility of focusing this congregation as a safe haven for the saved and a refuge for us, protecting us against the ravages of the world. Or we can move into our community as the hands and the feet of Jesus, allowing God to deal with our enemies, real or imagined precisely as God desires. I wonder which direction this church will go. I wonder what God has in mind for us. Frankly, I imagine us a lot like Ananias, like Matthew and James and John when they got wind of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, scared to death, wanting to run or hide or even leave for a safe place, where people look just like us and act like us and think like us. So full of fear, we might want to put a sign outside that says white, middle-class, perfumed, well-behaved children with homes like ours, welcome. We can think and act and talk that way when confronted with our fear of the likes of Saul of Tarsus. But surely God has something else in mind for us. I know he does. And it begins with what Jesus himself advises. He told us. He said, love your enemies and pray for those who use you. What do you think of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus? Is to ask what we think of the conversion of the most notorious enemy of the church and what we think of the possibility of welcoming and baptizing everyone, everyone into this church. So what do we think of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus? We answer that question by telling the truth. Yes, Saul of Tarsus, real or imagined, scares us to death. But our faith is larger than our fear. Our fear will only hold us bondage. Yes, we are in favor of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. 
on this day, in this community, in this church. So help us, God.